Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guests today are my dearest friends. I, and, and certainly by now, the uh, guest who has most frequently shared this particular stage with me, the legendary uh, writer, speaker, public thinker, and now uh, climate change editor, saving the world, the great Seth Godin. Hi, Seth. The reigning champ, back to defend his title. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is fun. And, and it's so great to pod in person with you. It's been years. I mean, we've spent plenty of time in person together, but we have not podcasted in person, I think, for a good, a good while. So Seth has put together a, an, an incredible volume that's out uh, on June. July 12th. On July 12th, called The Carmen Almanac. Well, you, that would be a book about bananas. The Carmen Almanac. This is the Carbon Almanac. What did I say it was? Carmen, like Carmen Miranda. Oh, I said like yeah. the hats, like Carmen yeah, Miranda's exactly, hats? Yeah. Sorry. The Carbon. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to do a whole Norm Crosby thing the whole time today. <laughs> it's going to be one malapropism after the next. Um, the Carbon Almanac, subtitled It's Not Too Late, further subtitled Facts, Connection, Action. Seth wrote the foreword. This was uh, an idea that he galvanized and uh, put together. Seth, describe, uh, just to start here, and, and look, we're gonna talk about a lot of the stuff we always talk about. I'm never gonna have Seth here without asking him stuff about the creative life and, and about moving forward and about the world we're living in as human beings. But I've, I've rarely seen you so consumed by something as I have seen you consumed by this project the way that it's animated you, lit you up. Every time I've been to your house, some new development about it has come up at dinner. I, I can tell that it this, uh, this feels like a mission. And so I just wanna give you the floor a little bit. I have specific questions about it, but can, can you just explain what the Carbon Almanac is, why you uh, put it together, and what its purpose is? It transformed me. It was an extraordinary opportunity to hang with 2,000 people in 91 countries every day. Um, but I need to talk about whales first. Great. So if you were an evil James Bond villain in 1675 and you wanted to kill all the whales, one way you would do that is by training a few henchmen to go kill whales. That would not work. The other thing you could do is figure out that whale oil is a good way to light your home. And within years, less than that, there would be whale oil refineries and whale oil salespeople and whale hunters. And within a century, there'd be almost no whales left because a system would be created and one of the byproducts of the system would be killing all the whales. The only thing that saved the whales was not telling people to eat less whale meat or telling people to not use whale oil. What saved the whales was kerosene. And the systems that are around us are really powerful. And I, as you know, have been writing about marketing and culture and systems for a long time, but never precisely naming it. And there are a lot of people who care deeply about how they behave in the world, about the impact that they have. And they have been brainwashed and indoctrinated by the fossil fuel industry into thinking that plastic can be recycled, into thinking that their carbon footprint is the problem, into thinking that until they clean up their act, they better not speak up. And what I wanted to do was, I wrote my first blog post about uh, climate change 16 years ago. It didn't solve the problem. So I figured another- The blog didn't fix it? That single blog post did not work. Um, but I needed to do something. And I said, if this is a systems problem, where's the systems solution? So the second thing I want to talk about is yoga mats. Was this yoga mat company called Gaiam. I'm probably not pronouncing it right. In addition to making yoga mats, they make yoga blocks. And they are a very mindful, thoughtful group of people that make most of the yoga blocks in this country, as far as I can tell. Yoga blocks, of course, made out of foam, which is made out of oil. But if you order a set of these yoga blocks, I know I'm ranting here. No, I'm so in. If you order a set of these yoga blocks from Amazon, they come shrink-wrapped in plastic. 
And the plastic shrink wrap is surrounded by a belly band of plastic with the label. And that plastic belly band is inside a plastic bag holding the shrink-wrapped plastic foam blocks. And I reached out to the CEO of the company and I said, you know, it looks like you're trying to do the right thing, but what's up with all this plastic? And he said, well, we don't have a lot of choice because the retailers make us do it. And if I reached out to a retailer and I said, what's up with all this plastic? They would say, well, if we don't do that, customers will complain because they're not pristine and we, our sales will go down and people... So there's a systems problem here. There's no evil villain, except that we got indoctrinated and brainwashed into thinking that we can fix this problem by having a compost pile. So the purpose of the Carbon Almanac, to finish my rant, is what would happen if there was an easy-to-read, easy-to-browse with cartoons and tables and charts verifiable collection of stuff so that if you browse through it, you would know enough to talk about it. Because if we don't talk about what's happening, we can't possibly make it better. And right now, people aren't talking about it. That's what the book is for. Talk a little bit more about the way in which whales were you I know about this because the brilliant Darren Aronofsky, the great filmmaker, uh, brought it up to David and me about how the end of the whaling industry and what happened in America to the whalers was an amazing sort of uh, opportunity to tell a dramatic story. And, and it's true. Um, but what was the consciousness of America at that time regarding this? Meaning, did they, uh, Americans living their daily lives, using whale oil to light their homes and heat their homes, or what, did they think there was another possibility? In other words, did they, if they thought about it at all, wasn't it only sort of like what a miracle that we have this? Correct. Is that it's a miracle, and you can. I saw this firsthand when I visited a little village outside of Bareilly in the 1600s. No, it was only 10 years ago. There are a billion people on Earth who have no light at night. Right. And if you want to get elected to anything in India, the way you do it is by promising people cheap kerosene. Because cheap kerosene is one of your biggest expenses. If kerosene is subsidized by the government, your expenses go down. So when D-Light shows up with solar lanterns in these villages, a solar lantern is pays for itself in 90 days, doesn't burn down your house, and doesn't give off noxious fumes. And it can charge your smartphone. They don't all buy a, a, a D-Light lantern the first day. They don't buy one the first year. Why? Because... The other thing was a miracle. The other thing was what my parents had. And we're not here to change things. We're here to live our lives. And the same thing is happening right here in New York City. It has nothing to do with where in the world you are. People want convenience. They want safety. And they want people to leave them alone. And so when folks show up and say, everybody, you've got to switch what you do. And you've got to use less plastic bags and everything else. People roll their eyes, turn off the podcast, and go back to the well, I also think part of that, and I want to ask how, I know you're aware of this, and I want to ask how you're managing it. So I read every word you write, right? I read the blog every day. Um, I know the, every, I've read all your books, some more than once. I read them closely. Many before they're published of the last <laughs> few years. I talked to you about them. But reflexively, I don't want to read this book. Yep. Because I feel powerless yep. to make any change. The problem seems so big, taking all the political aspects out of it. The problem, I mean, you can't fully separate it because, okay, I know that there's some number of people who are deeply opposed for lots of reasons to making any change. But even if I felt like everyone wanted to make a change, in their hearts, they wanted to change it. It feels to me like not drinking water out of a water bottle that's plastic, a plastic water bottle will make no difference. Correct. And the fact that it will make no difference and that in, in fact, uh, even if I chose to eat less uh, less beef, make very little difference. And so reading about the dire predicament mm -hmm. that we're in yeah, what is a, a fucking bummer, man. So let me so, just ask so, you a question. Yeah. If I wanted to get elected to office 
And I said, the first part of my platform is we're going to raise taxes by $50 billion to subsidize the beef industry. How far do you think that would go? Right. Yeah. Even in Texas, how far do you think that would go? You're it saying, would be a total non-starter. But you're saying it's baked in. and We, we paid, you and me, taxpayers in the United States, $50 billion to subsidize the beef industry last year. Yeah, although, you know, uh, the farm subsidies are, when you say it as beef, but but the no. farms but but farm subsidies as you know every year we mm -hmm. watch politicians promise to keep the farm subsidies and I hear you I'm saying so when you ask that I don't know I actually think even but though you say it to me but we're not subsidizing carrots the point I'm making is yes. that every single page in the almanac has a three digit number on it and if you type that number into our website it shows you all of the footnotes we didn't make up anything. There are no points of view. I'm just. I, I know that's right. true, of course. So I learned a ton. Like I learned that plastic recycling is a fraud. That putting your stuff in the recycling bin is only saving time for the people who are going to burn it after they pick it up. That it was invented by the plastics industry so we would leave them alone. When people hear this, they get sort of angry, right? And what we have the opportunity to do is solve a big problem that actually is pretty simple by understanding only one thing. We have artificially lowered the price of certain kinds of fuel for 150 years. And if we charged the right price for it, people could make a new decision, a better decision. And so you know, the woman who was in front of me at the uh, convenience store the other day, uh, an hour ago, said to the clerk, uh, does that Perrier come in a plastic bottle? And I thought, oh, this is going to be a great example of a New Yorker who isn't going to buy it because it's in a plastic bottle. She had the paper bag, she had everything else. And the woman said, yes. She said, okay, great, I'll take it. And if that plastic bottle was priced properly, she would have said, no, the glass one's more convenient, please. Because we have artificially subsidized the plastic bottle to make it cheaper than it's supposed to be. We should let people make good decisions based on the truth. And if we did that, this problem would get solved in less than 10 years. How do we empower, how do we convince, how do you, with this book, send people, you know, draw a map that lets people understand the destination and that in fact, they can assist in us getting there. That's what I'm trying to ask you is, I believe that many of us feel disempowered in this oh, area. Oh, for sure. I'm disempowered on purpose. Right. I, of course. Yes. But, but disempowered nonetheless. Correct. And this ties into your conversation with Sammy. So here's the thing. The percentage of the U.S. population that wants there to be zero gun control is not very big. Right. The percentage of the population that wants there to be no choice is not very big. The percentage of the population that wants there to be gay marriage is bigger than those two numbers, but it's not everybody. And in every one of these cases and others, a small group of people persistently and consistently, without getting distracted, change the Constitution of the United States without a vote. Because our system, the market and the government, is incredibly responsive to certain sorts of consistent, persistent, focused behavior. And the purpose of the Almanac is not for me or any of the other volunteers, and I'm a volunteer, I don't make a penny for this, not to tell you what to do. It's to make you informed enough that you will figure out what to do and speak up and speak up and speak up. And the examples, okay, China, in the last year, built enough solar and wind facilities to replace 52 coal plants, one a week. That number is going to go up. As these things start to happen, it turns out one coal plant makes way more of an impact than many cities worth of people. So what we need to do is say, as a group, to anyone who's running for anything, to anyone who is building any sort of company, don't do that, please. And the number of phone calls that need to happen is very small give, before it changes. Give me a talking point to, I was with a very, uh, one of the most successful investors in the world last week. And someone who does not lean um, in a traditionally, what you would call just traditionally conservative or right-wing way, someone who thinks, certainly thinks of himself 
as left center person, cares about the world, cares about the environment, probably uh, would use a reusable water bottle and bag at the store. And he said essentially that ESG investing in the end is going to have been responsible for the famine that's about to hit the world. ESG that, has some problems for sure. That what he, what, he, what, he, what he said was the ramifications on our current lives. Mm -hmm. The oil, so he, there's an example he used. Exxon's uh, P, and e, P to E ratio, PE ratio, as you I'm sure know, is much worse than it was. Largely because of, partially because investors, institutional investors have been lobbied to put their money elsewhere mm -hmm. or whatever the other sort of causes of, of that are. But the result is they haven't been drilling in the oceans as much for the stuff that comes up three years from now. Mm -hmm. As you know, and I didn't know until I started really learning about this, um, the combination of, so fertilizer is largely a byproduct of petroleum and all Correct. that stuff, the main ingredient in fertilizer. Fertilizer use is therefore down. The price of fertilizer has gone way up. Mm -hmm. Use of fertilizer has gone down. Crop sizes have gone down. Yields, crop yields have gone down. Many people will be hungry over the next year who wouldn't have been hungry. This is the thesis, it's uh -huh. not my thesis. I hear you. Many people would be hungry will be go hungry around the world because uh, Exxon isn't making as much oil. And I know how evil a company, like all that stuff, right? But, but what's the response to, to that? How do you balance the urgent need to change the world going forward sure. with the pragmatic and practical need that people should have food in their bellies? And so, if I'm wrong in what no, I laid out, please I don't, speak I don't think to there's it. any giant factual problem in what you just laid out. The first thing to begin with is that oil is a miracle, coal is a miracle. This thing that comes out of the ground, you don't need any skill to get it, creates wealth. And the world we live in today would not exist if we hadn't done that. The same way cocaine and LSD enable certain rock and roll singles to exist that probably wouldn't have happened. The question is, after you misuse drugs long enough, can you keep making rock and roll songs? Right. How long is this miracle good for? And... I think people who lean in a conservative direction, if they think about this, will come to the conclusion that this is the greatest thing they ever heard for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's going to lead to a significant creation of wealth as people find a new place that the internet was the last one, because crypto is a scam. The, the internet was the last one that all these great opportunities, right? Number two, do you want to be off the grid or do you want to be on the grid? Because when you're on the grid, you're controlled by the government and a giant corporation, right? Exxon can turn off the spigot. When you have your own electricity coming from the sky, it's yours. And number three, the idea that you should leave the world better than you found it doesn't feel to me to be anathema to the mindset of someone who leaves. I agree, but how do you balance the equities? So I'm gonna so so then the question then is the wizard and the prophet. This is a book I recommend for everybody who's listening to this. It's spectacular. Who wrote that book? Um, I okay, I'll find out right There's now. There's a whole page about it in the Almanac. The Wizard and the Prophet is a great audiobook as well. And what it says is, it turns out there are two guys who only met each other once who both changed the world. And the wizard was the guy who figured out how to do intensive fertilizer-laden agriculture. And the prophet was the guy who said, we need to be smaller, we need to be environmentalists, we need to be careful. And the two of them are basically the duel of the 1900s, right. one way or the other. And the wizard won the Nobel Prize for the Green Revolution, for figuring out how to hybridize corn so that it could grow in various places and lead to all sorts of magical successes. One of the results of that is that populations can increase and people can live a better life. One of the other results of it is the soil's dead. And it turns out an enormous amount of carbon is sequestered in soil. Sad Guru talks but, about this a lot. It's, yeah. He's really, he, that's his new Sad mission. Guru's mission, and I, I've spent time with him talking about this recently, and I know this is so, Correct. about the soil. So here we are on the Titanic, everything is fine, 
People are being fed. We're steaming across the ocean. Someone says, not me, someone says, there's an iceberg over there. And someone else says, but if we turn, some of the water on this fancy tablecloth will spill. So keep going. And what we've got to do is realize that ESG is imperfect, that there are going to be real tragedies associated with the shifts that are going to happen. But what we also have to acknowledge is it's really hard to fight the weather. Anyone who has ever lived in Buffalo, anybody who has ever lived in Texas says, when the weather wants what the weather wants, the weather gets what the weather gets. And, and the it, weather is going to start fighting. In a way, this is part of the challenge. I'm, I'm, what I'm really getting to is why this is all emotionally challenging mm -hmm. terrain, right? Understanding that it needs to change long for us to thrive. But it's also kind of a real life version of the trolley problem. Yeah. Because where the, the train is steaming down the tracks and it's eventually going to kill a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Everybody. But if we divert the train, it is going to kill some people who otherwise would be okay sooner. Right now, there isn't a conductor with a, a, a handle that they can turn. The argument that I'm trying to make and that I'm hoping people will get what I got out of the almanac, but I didn't help put this in there. It's just true. We don't have anybody controlling the tracks right now. And in my little town, uh, leaf blowers that are fueled with gas are now against the law five months of the year. Why is that? Well, it turns out one hour of using a leaf blower is exactly the same as driving a Chevy from here to California. One hour. And they're noisy and they put all this... It uses that much yes, gasoline? One, one, and, that, and it uses it in a really dirty way because of the kind of engine it is. So every single gardener doing their best argued with every single customer saying, but it's less convenient, I'm going to have to charge you more. They changed the law because 40 people spoke up. And magically, the gardeners have electric leaf blowers within a week. And I've talked to four of them. They love it because their employees the no, get no more done. Everything, right? Everything is better. Now, are we going to have a transition like that in agriculture that easily? Of course not. But I would like there to be a system in place so that we are moving forward in the direction that we need to go. So a simple example, again, another thing that most people don't know. The stuff that comes out of cows, methane, is 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. That's just true. Meaning that for every ounce of methane that comes out, it's as if you had 80 ounces of carbon dioxide. So if somebody knows that and they decide, I'm going to eat less beef, okay, fine, whatever. It's, you're right. It's not going to make a difference. But if we put in place investment structures, tax structures, regulation structures, so that we get to test tube beef a lot faster, all of a sudden beef is going to get cheaper, not more expensive. People are going to get more easily fed. We're going to have a resilient forward motion. But if we wait until it's too late, we won't have the money to go do that. So you've always had this a really uh, deep and wide social conscience and have always in your private time tried to make structurally the world a better place. But what lit this particular, but your work has largely been about human beings maximizing who they are so that they can do work that helps other human beings, that touches them, lights them up, fires them up. Uh, you know, as you know, the book of yours that uh, I give out constantly is The Dip, which is about how to evaluate whether in whatever your pursuit is, you should quit or press on. Uh, these are very personal, very uh, um, inspiring in a way, not cheap inspiration, uh, deeply inspiring works. They are not real. And, and through, you know, the idea, and it's always in your books too, which is, if you think you're selfish for doing this work, you should know that by doing this work in this way, you're actually serving the world. And that's a point you make over and over again in your speeches and, and everything else. And it's all true. But it's very different than this project. Uh, I don't think it is. Uh, well, you can talk about that for sure. Bake that into your answer. I'm gonna. But what lit you up right. to, to, to make something here that is about 
a structural problem in the world that you noticed and how to fix a structural problem. And in fact, you didn't do this as an individual. You did this as a team. So what lit the mission for you? Yeah. And why was this the way to prosecute the mission? Meaning sure. this group of people. So the origin story is uh, a science fiction writer named Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a book called Ministry for the Future. Also an amazing audiobook. Someone handed me the book three years ago, two years ago. And I read 10 pages and I put it down. I was so heartbroken. I couldn't read another page. Fortunately, I got the audiobook and that got me through the beginning. If you want to skip the first 10 pages, you can go back and read it later. This book describes a future seven years from now where uh, 15 million people die in one week in India from a heat wave. And then what happens? And it is ultimately an optimistic, positive exposition in only the way good science fiction can do it, if it wants to, of how we figured out systems to solve this problem. And, you know, I was present at the birth of the Internet. I started one of the first Internet companies. I wrote the very first book on cyber currency and just completely was a bystander on Bitcoin. I'm fascinated by systems. When I wrote in my book, it's actually true, I'm embarrassed, I wrote a book called Email Addresses of the Rich and Famous. And in the first chapter of Email Addresses of the Rich and Famous, I proposed how we could get rid of spam. So I see systems around us. And the platform that I have been lucky enough to get mostly lets me talk to individuals about how they, when they do work they are proud of, the same way you have in your podcast, make it better for all of us. And what I'm arguing, having no plan when I started organizing these volunteers, what I've learned is the way individuals are going to make a difference is by not recycling plastic, but by speaking up, by telling 10 people. I didn't write, didn't cause this book to occur so that skeptics would buy it. No skeptic is going to buy this book. I bought it so the people who get it, I bought it. I helped create it so that people who get it will give out five copies. Because if you hand a copy of this to your friend Brian, who doesn't want to read it, he'll browse through it. And suddenly, some percentage of those people will say, you know what I need to do? I need to call that person I made a donation to and say, this is on my list. You know what I need to do? I need to call that company where I'm a good customer and say, stop wrapping the grapefruit in saran wrap when you send it to me. Because grapefruit already comes in a wrapper. And it's going to save you a lot of money. And I'm not going to buy grapefruit from you anymore if you keep doing it. Because if one company stops wrapping grapefruit in plastic, that will make a difference. That's what we're looking at. What is the end result for humanity in first world countries mm -hmm. if nothing really changes over the next 15 years? The biggest thing you're going to have to face if you live... Uh, near the shore, which we do, is that the New York City subway will be underwater and they don't know how to fix it. The second problem... So New York turns into Venice. Parts without the history. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the subway is it's all connected. So once one substation is underwater, you got a big problem. The second thing is, there are going to be 100 million refugees. What are you going to do about that? Are you just going to ignore them and let them die? No. Because we have a connection to the rest of the world, even if it's just electronic. So those are two things. Wealthy people will find food. Wealthy people will find a place to live, and they'll just run more air conditioning. This is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is you benefit from being wealthy because you live in a world where you can live. And if you have to move to a bunker to survive and watch on television 150 million refugees with nowhere to go, I think that would suck. Yeah, even the people inside uh, in total recall are not having a good time inside that bubble. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're in the bubble, but they're, they're, so they're better off than all the people who got vaporized, but, but it, it's no fun. Yeah, and also, this is the only planet in the known universe that can support human life. So we got nowhere else to go anyway. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about why so, so much of this stuff has been sort of known for a while. Oh, yeah. You Just know, like um, I used to die. read I used to read this thing, Climate Change Daily, that would present both sides of the argument, like every article written by scientists for years, years and years, 20, you know, 15 years ago, I started reading yep. it and I looked at it on a weekly basis. And then I don't know, about eight years ago, you and I were sitting somewhere and you said uh, there is no balanced other side. And you kind of walked me through it. 
And I, that was the end of that for me. I was like, yep, I know that Seth's right. That said, man, it still feels dispiriting because oh, yeah. I don't feel like, you know, what, what can I do? I can give you this microphone to be on the podcast, right? I can, like you said, raise my voice. But beyond that, and I was thinking about like what is so challenging. Well, so we know and, what's challenging. People don't do pre-need funerals. People don't right. want to talk about which old age home they want to go to. Death is off the table unless you live in Tibet. You're just not allowed to talk about it, right? But in the almanac, there's a two-page spread in which we Xeroxed, and I hope they sue us, a memo from Exxon, 1982. Yeah. Paragraph by paragraph, Exxon, one of their senior scientists, describes to a tenth of a degree what the world would be like today. And he was right. There isn't a dispute about this. We're not having an intellectual conversation. There's a deep emotional conversation to be had. And that is, how far forward is your horizon? But it's, yeah, it's fascinating because just to tease it out emotionally, maybe other people go through the same emotional journey. And I'll tell you what I have. I've been thinking about this and what I, how I want to compare it. I mean, you bring up Tibet. It's funny. Uh, I, I'm very much with the Tibetans about the Tibetan monks in that you have to understand you're, that you're mortal. Like I'm one of those American, even I agree with you, we don't think about this. I think about, as you know, Amy and I think about this all the time. Uh, I'm constantly trying to uh, understand it in a way that we can't, but trying to understand because this is the journey of, of living, sure. right? But somehow that's still personal, right? That's uh, personal. And, and what I started thinking about was when the, when the rhetoric, even from the side that's ultimately right, is inexact, it can have the effect of letting the listener off the hook. And I'm going to give sure. you an example. So I got really caught up in, this is probably right before you and I became friends. I think you and I met in 2012 or something like that. 20, and, and it was right before that, maybe the five years before that, I was reading a lot about peak oil. Mm -hmm. And the peak oil people said that you can't get oil from shale. Yep. It won't work. That's not really a solution. And when you would read the peak oil arguments and they would say, you know, the moment you read this, it's like a veil being lifted. You sure. will be depressed. And it was true that you felt depressed if you bought into peak oil. Yeah. They were wrong about they were wrong about the root cause issues. Mm hmm of what was happening, meaning they were wrong about the supply, they were wrong yeah. about what was available. And the tech. The gestalt, they were right about the fact that relying on energy like this would lead to moments of great uncertainty mm -hmm. and price gouging, like we're in now. We're not in the situation now because of peak oil. But we are in the situation that they were talking about. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, and so it seems to me that getting the rhetoric right so that we don't get let off the, because then you know what happened to me was when I started to realize, could you do more research? I started to realize, oh no, actually there's enough oil. I don't have to worry about this anymore. Yeah. Those fuckers were wrong and they got me all worried and worked up. And they told me that it was this 10 year horizon. That was 15 years ago. Yeah. Alex used to say, the villager cried wolf and no one, like the little boy cried wolf and no one came. That's the whole story in one sentence. Right. Well, it, yeah. but it is, but, it, but peak oil is very relevant because. Well, but I'm saying. They 100%. Were, in order to get the attention of a lot of people, people have to catastrophize. Yes. And it was interesting listening to Sammy talk about politicians because politi politics has shifted dramatically into consultants raising money. And consultants who are raising money don't care about anything except raising money. And so they catastrophize everything all the time. And whatever issue helps them raise the most money is the issue that they put on the table. The, the challenges here, I think, are this. First of all, um, betting against technology is a tricky thing to do. Technology can do amazing things. But if we end up with resilient soil, free solar power, free wind power, and clean air, that it's a win like for a, everybody. It seems like a pretty happy It's a outcome, win for everybody. Right? And the, if we said, no, what we're going to wait for is one more technical miracle just in time, well, that's survivor bias. That says it's happened before. Absolutely. So but if it hadn't happened, if we hadn't figured out what to do with nuclear weapons in 1959 to 1975, we'd all be dead. We got lucky. 
How did you make the decision? You're correct. How did we make the decision? How did you make the decision? You're a great writer. You're a writer who's able to engage people, the reader. You take a reader on a journey. Uh, you know exactly how to uh, be witty and funny on the page and raise questions on the page. And you decided to use very little of that in the creation of this book. Mm -hmm. I would think someone with, who clearly cares this much about this issue with your facility as a creative force would have written this book, used some researchers and, sure. uh, and galvanized this force to help you, but that you would have written the book so that it was tonally mm -hmm. a Seth Godin book. I, it seems to me you made a, a different choice. Can you talk about why you wanted to make this almanac in this way? That's a great point. Um, first, it's not a book, it's an almanac. They're different things. Books have beginnings, middles, and ends. Almanacs, and I've made more almanacs than any person I know of. I made the business almanac, the celebrity almanac, the women's almanac. Almanacs are designed for browsing and they don't have a voice. They, here are all the flags of all the countries. You don't like this country? Not my problem. There's a flag for it because it's a country. And so I decided right at the beginning that what I was going to do is lean into the process. Because if I could lean into the process, I would learn something as opposed to just say something. And so what happened was Vivek from India showed up out of the blue and wrote seven articles that no one expected were going to happen. And then Paul from Colorado showed up out of the blue and said, wait a minute, did you know about this, about ammonia? There would never have been anything about ammonia in this book if I had run it. I didn't run it. What I did was when something showed up, I said, that doesn't sound like us or that sounds like us. When someone said, I want to put in a detailed argument about this because this is what everyone should do. It's like, you can write your own book. That's not what this is. This is an almanac. So my job was to be the process person and the, the idea that it's going to sound like an almanac. But then other people said, wouldn't it be great if we had a 12-page book for kids? I'm like, go for it. And it ended up being a 74-page, illustrated, designed, free ebook for kids that's already been downloaded tens of thousands of times. Because someone did something I could never have done. So define what you mean by an almanac, not just something that has entries. Like, is the Book of Lists, was that an almanac? The Book of Lists was inspired by almanacs. Almanacs, uh, so trivial aside, uh, one of the big breakthroughs I had in my career was inventing the, the most successful online game at the time. And it turns out that the $64,000 question in the whole game show TV scandal of the 50s yes. came from someone who made almanacs. And so the overlap between almanacs and trivia and all that was fresh in my mind. Almanacs go all the way back to the farmers and to Ben Franklin. It is just a compendium of useful, true information that you can look up. And what I found was every time I saw a report from the United Nations, my eyes glazed over. Every time I right. saw yet another website that went on and on about something, my eyes glazed over. What I wanted was something that worked the way my brain works, the way the internet works, which is, oh, look at this. I could go find out more if I want. Are you So that these entries would be enticing the reader Correct. to uh, go deeper if they hit upon something Correct. that resonated in a certain way for them. Right. And, and did you uh, and the group give feedback on the pieces themselves so that they're readable? Yeah, so the way we created the book is there's a piece of software called Discourse. It's open source. It's amazing. I customized it, invited everybody in. First, there was just a month of scrum and people meeting each other. And then people started writing short articles. Every article got a three-digit number. And then we moved the articles that met the standard to an online database called Notion that everyone could have access to. And then every article could get, got rewritten by people over and over and over again. When an article got good enough that people said, we're ready for three of you to look at this, three people would look at it and go, put a flag next to this one. It worked. And if an article wasn't getting anywhere, we'd send in one of our best people to rewrite it. So there is, except for the Tim Wu article, just about it and the Exxon one, just about every article in here was written by at least a dozen people looking back to the original sources. And then we hired and paid two fact checkers. We gave them all our original sources and we gave them the almanac and said, if there's anything in this almanac that's not in the original source, it comes out. And they went through the whole book, the two of them, 
to find things that we had asserted that weren't true. And so that this is a compendium of facts. Correct. And if there are ideas, there are ideas that come directly from a set of incontrovertible facts. And we credit the person whose idea it is, because it's not our idea. If someone thinks that what we have to do is get more hummus in the soil, not the dip, but actual organic matter, we say this person is arguing that. And since this is all so clear, like, uh, I am obviously pro uh, planet. A lot of the gun control things, like, you know, background checks, mm -hmm. um, cooling off periods, no semi automatic weapons, and all that stuff, right? But I do recognize that culturally, not everybody who has a different opinion than mine in this issue is an evil person. The, I think politicians suck because they know better. Uh -huh. But I know there are a lot of people for whom guns sure. are passed down from their great grandparents. Yeah, and they're saying, I'm not going to use guns. The and they way. know they're not. By, they're not, by the yeah. way. They're, they're, it's sure. a part of their family in the same way an acoustic guitar might be part of somebody else's uh -huh. family, right? So I understand where there's good faith on both sides at the retail level, not at the politicians level, mm -hmm. but the retail level. I understand there's good faith on both sides. On this, I don't really see good faith on both sides. So, but why is the argument, why are the arguments, the claims about climate um, that purport to debunk everything in your book, language-wise, why has that side found a language that hooks a lot of people, meaning a lot of center people, people who are just trying to like live their, is it, is it just because it's their wish, they're tapping into wish fulfillment? Like what, because you must have thought a lot about language with this. Uh -huh. So why is their language kind of like in some quarters winning? Well, I mean, as a marketer, the, easy, asking, the yeah. easiest things to market are things that are irresistible because they are convenient, because they give a status and affiliation, because they're cheap. So if you go to a health food store and they say, if you take this placebo with no side effects, it will keep your hair from falling out. A lot of people are like, oh, sure, I'll do that. And so if someone comes to you and say, don't worry about this, you have the freedom to do that. We're going to keep subsidizing this. And your personal freedom is endless. Well, that's an easy sale. And part of the problem is the time horizon. How far in the future is this problem? And part of the problem is the geographic thing, which is, oh, well, my truck is putting something into the air, but I won't be here because I'm driving down the road. That's your problem. Well, okay, this is great. I had written this down to ask you. Yeah. So on those matrices always, like urgent and important are the first things you deal with. But what people don't um, reckon with very often is an urgent and important problem, the results of which yep are not immediate. Correct. We think urgent and important means immediate. Right. But I think you're arguing in this book, urgent and important means you have to take immediate action, even if the results are now, you know, you may say 15 years, some other people may say 50 years, but it doesn't matter if, if in 50 years everything ends, it's fucking urgent. But how do you, how do you market that? Correct. So part of the challenge and, you know, you expose so much humanity in this podcast, is understanding what the discount rate is. So I need to bring in just a tiny, tiny bit of math, which is if somebody said, how much would you pay me for a vacation home that you can move into 20 years from now that's worth a million dollars, you probably wouldn't pay more than a few thousand dollars, even if you were certain that 20 years from now it was yours. Because what human beings do is we devalue things that are in the future. That is the only way to make decisions. The question is, how much do we devalue them? So someone who is good at being on a diet says, I will give up the pleasure of eating this chocolate bar because I want to look good at graduation they six months They can see from that now. because they can really see that date no, six it's months. It's because they have a different discount rate than someone who doesn't. And the planet's average discount rate for the value of the planet, I, I don't have the source right here, is that we think the earth is worth $10,000 a hundred years from now, if you add it all up. That a hundred years from now, so far away, 
Yeah. That we would sell the destruction of the entire planet 100 years from now for $10,000. So, okay, that's the problem. Correct. What's the solution? Well, that's the problem. I, get, I agree correct. with you. That's so the problem. We have a systemic problem that is amplified by culture. So, there are cultures in the past, for example, Sparta, which had a warrior culture, or medieval Japan, which had a culture that was much more focused on honor and duty than yes. ours. We have a culture that industrialists amplified a focus on convenience with a discount rate that rewarded today. So we have to change the culture. What will change the culture? This is the really cool thing, because as you know, I love markets. I think markets, individuals making decisions in an uncoordinated way to solve problems have made us all rich and solved a lot of problems. There are fewer people in dire poverty now as a percentage than any time in the history of mankind because it works if it is fed correct information. So what we have to do to fix it is the percentage of people who care about this, which is way more than 60% in the United States. The number of true skeptics is very tiny. They're just loud. Um, the people who care about this need to consistently and persistently talk to the folks who build our systems and say, make it so that there's a different set of rules so the market can do the right thing. That makes sense to me. You know, where I, I've, uh, I'm understanding all the negatives of uh, structurally of TikTok, and its origins. One amazing thing about TikTok is that it has put me in contact with people I would otherwise not be in contact with. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, I mean, you know how curious I am. So if I go down a road, I will then get exposed for a period sure. of time to a whole bunch of people from a culture that I'm not in. Yeah. And I somehow stumbled into corn farming TikTok. That's awesome. It's awesome. And I see these corn farmers. I see them hurting right now because of the fertilizer. Yep. Planting. I'm literally knowing they're going to be able to have much less money to pay their farm debt off. Sure. Put their kids into schools, feed their families. Like it's just very clear. And I also know that they're working um, insanely long it's and brutal really days. Job. So like that's when we talk about farm subsidies, like we do have to sort of like, as I know you do, we have to understand these are people who wake up and barely have time to contemplate. The, 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 I, the, I, I meant no disrespect. Oh, I know. I'm so aware. I'm so aware. I'm talking about something else, but keep going. Yes. You're talking about industrial subsidies. I'm talking about the industrial payoffs to people who use half of all the land in the United States to raise cattle. Yeah. Half. I'm not arguing I that. I don't think most people wanted to sign up for that. Where I was trying to finish, get to, though, was. But I just didn't want to be the best. I know. That's why I wanted to. Okay. No, that's why I was trying to say I know that you, I'm fully aware that you grapple with. You grapple with the unintended consequences of all of this and yeah. are aware of the consequences, intended or unintended. These are smart people, though. They're hardworking people, yeah. they're rigorous people. And what we are talking about is drastically shifting the, the, the way they live their lives. Well, and and but, so language-wise- in which, in which order? So let's say we have a problem in front of us. Why do we have coal plants? Because we can replace a coal plant without hurting one farmer. And if we start by replacing coal plants, we can use the carbon we're saving to make fertilizer until we come up with better fertilizer. But there are still coal plants. Help me understand why are there still coal oh, plants. Oh, I can't. Fracking. And in fact, I know that you know, coal uh, financially did very well for people in the last you know, because, couple of years. But the, but the thing is, there are only 100,000 full-time coal miners in the United States. Yes. Right? When the internet came along and every travel agent in America lost their job, we didn't have a big lobby of travel agents. What I'm trying to get to is, right, that's what I'm really trying to get to. What I'm really trying to get to is, again, because I agree with you, I'm trying to get to is, how do you address these constituencies yeah. in a way that makes it clear that their long-term self-interest is actually 
in their self-interest now. And what that's the challenge. And my answer to you is this. The farm community for 150 years has done an extraordinarily good job of persistently and consistently changing the behavior of the federal government so that they could have a tolerable way to make a living, right? The people who are seeing the facts that are inside the carbon almanac are doing a terrible job of that because instead they're saying, I'm going to shame somebody for using a plastic water bottle. Right. As opposed to saying, you cannot run for president unless the first thing on your platform is this, that the thing about your interview with Sammy, I learned so much from it, but he didn't bring it up at all because the fact is it's not what helps them raise money. It's not what helps someone get elected. It's not what people ask at every town hall. If those three things changed, then the system would change. You cannot go to a town hall in Iowa without talking about farm subsidies. You just can't. So how is it possible that you can have a town hall in New York without talking about climate change? Well, it's a really, that's a question I would put back on to you. Right. Why so, is that not the right. conversation? And, and I'm saying I am, uh, I have empathy for the people who, for short-term reasons, want the world to not change when it comes to fossil fuels. But we don't need their support. What we need simply is the people who already care about this to stop getting hoodwinked by carbon footprint and speak up and organize. That is the thesis that came across. And what do we do? I'll say this. What is the best language you've found in a short burst to explain the problem to a corn farmer who's having a fertilizer problem. Yeah. And what I would say is people got to eat and people are going to still need to eat. But just like we've changed the way we make just about everything else in our world, we're going to change the way we make corn. Why is it in her self-interest? None of this is in anyone's short-term self-interest, just like so many of the other issues that have changed our culture aren't in people's short-term interests, right? The fact is that if you were That's... a happy gun owner 30 years ago, you didn't need to join the NRA and blah, 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 because you were already doing but what you were That's a very doing. deep, so this is a very deep, and it's a very deep point. And I think maybe this is a mistake that most people who talk about this make, and you don't. They try to sugarcoat that part of it and make it like it's a minor inconvenience for you to change no, what you're doing. Not. I think it's much better to say part of this is going to suck. Right, but part it's of also this is a, not in your short term. It's uh, also a massive opportunity. We are just a couple years away from being able to build a cheap building that uses solar power on the top and grows stuff on the inside, wherever you want to build it, so that instead of one acre of land, it's got four levels so that you can still be a farmer and you can be insulated from the weather, much more efficient, much more reliable, and get to where you need to go. That's not an easy transition, but there's what's on the other end. We're the only way to feed 7 billion people without completely, let, let me just put one aside. As people get richer around the world because of culture, they switch to beef. And if everyone in the world starts eating the way the people in the United States eat, we need a whole other planet just for the cows. Right. You can't deny that math. That's true. So should we say no one else is allowed to eat meat? We've made a rule. Or should we say we got to figure out how to make meat in a way that you can be happy with the job that you do and people can be happy with what they eat? If only Frank Zappa hadn't died, he could have made an album called The Planet for the Cows. <laughs> I mean, how, how is that album, how does that album not exist? All right, I have a couple of uh, weirdly sort of related questions. I've never, there's a couple of things I've never asked you, really relevant to this. But does our generation even really deserve a voice in the direction of the future? Like what's our, sometimes I feel like the truth of the matter is we should just shut the fuck up. And like, it's not our, it's truly not our battle, I feel sometimes. So here's a thesis that I've not heard other people say out loud. Since 1961, everything has been about the baby boomers. When we were in our teens, I'm Gen X, luckily, it was but about yes. but it was about rock and roll, right? Yes. When right when Vietnam came up, it was because baby boomers were going to get drafted, so it was about yes. that. 
You know what's happening now? We're all dying. And that's why you've got grouchy, angry people who are on various yes. parts of the political spectrum. And it's why uh, all of a sudden it's the issue of the day. So it's easy to say the Althacockers shut up and let the other people do it. What I might say is at some point you start to think about your legacy. At some point you say, I have enough money to make it to the end. I've earned some influence. What am I going to do with it? But and I, yeah, that's but I, why I hope that the people who want to leave things better than they found them will speak up without worrying about the short those term. Those sort of short-term consequences. Because I do think like, uh, you don't really talk about politics much and I don't, I don't want to, but I, it occurred to me when I was watching the last couple of cycles, like maybe if you're over 65, you shouldn't get to be president. You know, and that, that because you're, you're, the people who are being led, your, your concerns and theirs aren't the same. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, I, actually, I heard you talk about it with Sammy. There are so many interesting game theory things that we could do if we were the author of our future. Like the whole thing that someone came up with, which the button for the nuclear bomb needs to be put in the chest of a Secret Service agent. Right. So the only way to have a nuclear thing is for the president to cut off his head with a sword, reach into his chest That's and awesome. press the button. Right. right? And so democracy sucks, but the alternatives are so much worse. And... Um, Yes. I, it's heartbreaking to see media companies that shape the culture make a profit from division. Because when someone makes a profit from something, they do it more. Well, yeah, and, I've been deep in the research on the next season of Super Pumped. And, you know, you, you, you don't have to go so far to, to understand yeah. the ways in which certain things sometimes get weaponized. All right. I, there were a couple of questions that people had that I'm just going to quickly look at. Um Okay, actually, this, this is uh, the other part. I'm so glad someone just asked this. They, Jim Samuel on, on, on Twitter asked this question, and I, I know he meant it about the creative life, but it actually ties into some question of mine about all this, which is, is it ever too late to start? This problem, is it like, you know, either personally, but also in this issue, because that is also what people think. There are many people who think because of what the peop people said 20 years ago, and because every five minutes people are saying, if we don't make this change in a year, sure. it's too late. So is it too late? Uh, I would say in general, there are lots of times it's too late to start. And I have felt that way about parts of my career and freed myself from not just the guilt, but also the frustration of starting something later than would have been productive. Things have curves, things have leverage, right? The question here is, it is entirely appropriate for us to have a thoughtful conversation and say, screw it, that's the end. Let's just enjoy ourselves. Who should make that decision? If some weird science fiction thing happened and the last kid who was ever born was born today, four years from now, would we say, I'm sorry, the school's really dingy, but we didn't have the money to fix it up. 10 years from now, would we be able to say to that kid, I'm sorry that there's no place for you to hang out. We just don't care enough to take care of it for you. I can't imagine that we would do that. The last kid, the last customer, the last viewer, they're, they're treasured. So I don't know how to be a thoughtful human. At the same time, I say, it's over. It doesn't matter. Burn more stuff. So even if we have to die trying, it feels like trying is a key part of our culture and our humanity. And so I don't think it's too late to start. I also know from the facts in the Almanac, um, we are right on the cusp of some technology and cultural breakthroughs that can reverse this problem. The Carbon Almanac, it's not too late. Facts, connection, action, forward by Seth Godin. Can people pre-order this now? I would hope that they would at thecarbonalmanac.org. And I hope that you will give it to someone you care about. Seth, thanks, man. I could talk to you for hours and hours. And in fact, we have. And every time is a joy. You can find uh, Seth's blog. He, every day, something uh, of great wisdom is produced on that blog. Uh, just type in his name and it will come up. You can also subscribe to his uh, e the email version, which is what I do, so that it's just uh, waiting for me uh, every morning. And um, Seth doesn't tweet, 
So I can't give you uh, his Twitter because who cares? There is one, but he doesn't. I'm he doesn't so tweet. proud of you for diminishing Twitter. And I just want to say, last word, Acosia.org, E-C-O-S-I-A. Acosia.org is a search engine with more privacy, more speed, and more delight than Google. And every time you do 50 searches, they plant a tree. How cool is that? Search and get trees planted. Yeah, I'm, I, I've, I've way, way, way diminished my time on Twitter. Well done. And I'm so much happier. You're better for it. It's so much better. Exactly. Yeah, everybody, diminish your time on Twitter. Okay, see you next time. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Bye.